Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, where we discuss and break down topics surrounding the science of behavior change in the world of animal care. This episode, we are talking about the importance of body language and training with special guest Heather Samper. Without further ado, let's talk some training and banter about behavior. Animal Behavior Conversations is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. Even though the content that you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, we think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with and others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. Hello and welcome once again. I'm your host, Shane, and I am currently on the board of directors for the ABMA and a self-proclaimed behavior nerd. But as we said, we're going to be focusing on the role of body language while training and kind of two, a little two main focuses are reading your animal learner's body language, but then also the body language that you are communicating to the animal. So thanks for joining me today, Heather. Howdy, Shane. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to finally do a podcast with you. I know we've kind of talked about it for a while, so excited to get into this. And I'm sorry that it's not about the ABMA bylaws. Oh, we can save that exciting episode for another day. (laughs) That can be a bonus episode if anyone is interested in how a nonprofit animal behavior organization runs. We can read you the bylaws. It's a thrilling, exciting read. It won't put you to sleep at all. It'll have you on the edge of your seat for hours on end. It's it's very exciting. Well, everyone can stay tuned for this thrilling episode in the future. But in the meantime, Heather, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey through the animal care and training field? I would love to. Um, I will try to keep it short, but I do wear a lot of hats. So there's several avenues of how I got to where I am today. So hat number one is my full-time job at Moody Gardens, which is in Galveston, Texas. And my senior year at Texas A&M in Galveston, Moody Gardens was building an aquarium. How perfect is that for someone studying marine biology and wants to do something with animals? And they were doing a volunteer recruitment to help raise their incoming penguin, king penguin eggs and raise them up over the next year to be ready for exhibit when the aquarium was supposed to open. So I was lucky enough and got to volunteer with that. And literally the day after I graduated, they hired me on. So that was wonderful timing. And I stayed at the aquarium working with the penguins and seals for two years. And for anyone that knows me, 50 degrees is not my temperature gradient at all. I am a summer girl. I like hot and humid. So I was enjoying the animals very much, but it was way too cold for me. So I migrated over to the rainforest 
exhibit and started various training programs every couple of years over there, like our ambassador animals, our free flight birds, mammals, uh, and giant river otters. And now I'm a senior biologist at the rainforest exhibit. Hat number two is my dog training business. Um, back in 2009, after Hurricane Ike devastated Galveston Island, I had two former coworkers that asked me to join them in starting a dog training business. I was really reluctant, mostly due to the fact that people were literally putting their lives and their houses back together. And I did not think we would be successful at all. Like, can we wait six months? Can we wait a year? Like people don't really have incomes right now and all their income is going back into their homes. But they were very convincing and I said, yes. And here we are 15 years later, still in business and we must be doing something right. So that's, it's a fun side job. Anyone that was at the 2016 ABMA conference in Tampa probably met my business partner, Trell. She is the most amazing person you will ever meet. Um, Shane, I don't know if you had a chance to meet her or not. I don't um, think so. No. So she's blind and she is the most positive, amazing person and human being that you'll ever meet. So she is a wonderful inspiration to me. She keeps me going. She gets me out of my comfort zone more than I get her out of hers, but we have a great business relationship and it's wonderful to have her as a business partner and a good friend. So my third hat is another business. Why have one business when you can have two, right? <laughs> so in 2015, we, the, the dog business, bought mytrainingstore.com. We are the third owners of this wonderfully established business. And I'm just riding the coattails of all the hard work that Meg Dye did to establish this business 20 years ago or more. So we've kept the name, we've kept the logo, people know who this is. So again, like why change something if it's going so well? It is a small business that literally lives in my garage. And we, I sell training supplies to zoos and aquariums around the world and seem to be branching out now into a lot more public are, are buying from us as well. So that's, that's pretty exciting. So hat number four is the ABMA. It's not a, a paid job per se, but I call it my, my volunteer job. So after my first conference, I got totally hooked, as I'm sure many of you out there have too. And I joined the publications committee and worked there for a few years and then uh, had the committee chair ask if I would join the board. Again, reluctancy kicked in, but I said yes and did two terms on the board of directors. And then in 2014, I was sort of voluntold to take over the website committee. So I've been doing that now for the last 10 years. So it is a it is a volunteer job, but I, I love it, Shane, just like you. You wouldn't be doing this if you didn't love it. And then finally, my my last hat that I wear is one that is I'm retired from, but it it got me where I am today and is really why we are doing this podcast, Shane, is search and rescue. 
I had a coworker at the rainforest ask me if I wanted to bring my new beagle and have us join her search dog team. And I was intrigued because I didn't think the general public could do that. I thought search and rescue was something law enforcement did. I had no idea. It is a huge, vast community of public volunteers that do this in different capacities. So I took my beagle to a training to get evaluated and he did what beagles do best. He passed with flying colors and I was the one that needed all the training, but I did search and rescue with him for his entire life. And then when I got two more beagles, I had them join as well. So they were trailing dogs and that is where the search dog wears a harness and a long line and the handler is at the end of that 20 foot leash and you look for a specific missing person. So we give them a scent article from that person and then they find where that person is. It's not off leash because the beagles would have said bye-bye and run away and never seen them again. So that's why they were trailing dogs. But they had a blast. I had a blast. I did that for 15 years and I learned so much about body language and how to look beyond training and what you think you know and to focus on body language and putting your full trust in your animal. So there you go, Shane, that's me in a really large nutshell. Yeah, and for anyone listening and wondering, even though Heather has all these hats, she's currently not wearing one, uh, but joking aside, my really bad joke aside, also just have to say that Heather had a very short thing of all the things that she does for ABMA. If you know Heather, or if you've ever been involved in ABMA, you know that Heather is a major cog in the running of the organization and has done so much, especially with the website. I can't even imagine all the things that go with that, rewriting the bylaws. So excited to have you on the ABMA's podcast and talking and really excited about this episode because a lot of times when talking with guests that are interested in coming on the podcast, I'll say, Here's some topics that we're hoping to cover soon, unless you have something that you really want to talk about. And I love it when someone like Heather says, can we do this? Because I'm super passionate about it. And then if you also know Heather, unsurprisingly, she sent a giant template with all these ideas, which is going to be great for us to talk about (laughs) and excited to get into that. And for Anybody who is a fan of The Little Mermaid and Ursula, we're going to talk about the importance of body language. Sorry, I had to do my little. (laughs) I love it, too. When I sent this topic to you, like every time I say that to somebody, body language like that, Ursula just runs through my head and I want to do her little octopus dance. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, that's all I think. (laughs) Whenever you said it, I just all I could think of was her voice saying the importance of body language. I'm glad that that joke hit. My hat joke was bad. That joke was good. So we're we're batting 500 so far. And one of the cornerstones of behavior is communication. And in order for communication to be the most effective, you have to know how to listen. Reading an animal's body language is such an important key to listening to your animal and knowing when to keep going or to adjust a plan. So in a nutshell, Heather, to kind of start this discussion, why is learning to read body language important when it comes to working with animals? Shane, that is a great question. And I think this is probably one of the the few episodes where you're not using something out of the wonderful ABMA glossary of terms. I don't think body language is in there. But 
you can better understand what's going on through an animal's mind if you can read their body language. And if you can understand your animals better than interacting with them, whether you're actively training them or not, will always be more productive and trustworthy. This is relationship building at its basic level. Because once you're aware of your animal's body language and what they're saying, most importantly, what it means, that's like the hard part, then you can start to reflect on your own body language and make sure that this easy to navigate two-way street for you and the animal you're working with. Shane, I've heard you say this in several episodes about watching like this harmonious, synchronous, intuitive ebb and flow between animal and trainer, and it looks beautifully hypnotizing. We've all seen it. And how do you get to that point? Like, how does that develop? It's body language, 100%. It is, in my opinion, the foundation of communication. Because mm. some of it's very subtle, and some of it is just blatantly obvious with like red flags and neon signs and pointer arrows. And some of it is extremely subtle. Um, but for me, body language is, is the fourth leg of a stool. Sure, you can have a stool with three legs, which is very stable, but four legs just makes that stool very complete. So that's why I think body language is very important. As you were talking, I thought about how many times you go kind of through these steps of, I don't know why, but this, this is why I chose to do this, or this is why we did this instead, because you're learning to read the animal's body language. And then once you get to go with them and you get to this ebb and flow, then you're able to start pointing out, that was what I was seeing. That's what I'm seeing. And then you can also help other people that are working with the animals. So that was kind of something that came into my head as you were talking of this importance of learning it and then also as you start to learn it the process that you're going to go through and it really does become this other language that you're learning and reading and communicating with the animal it is i've had so many new dog clients and maybe they have a new puppy or especially if they have like a reactive dog who have said well they just started doing this out of the blue and under my breath, I'm like, oh, no, they did not. <laughs> because we know behavior doesn't just, you know, those undesirable behaviors don't just happen overnight. And then once you, once I start pointing these out to clients, it's like you can just see their little light switch go off. Like, oh, my gosh, I haven't seen this before, but I think they've been doing it the entire time. And that's why I'm excited for this discussion, because it is one of those eye-opening things for anyone who is starting their journey and wanting to progress and learn. This is one of those topics that, like you said, is not in the ABMA glossary, but it is a part of this art of behavior change. It's This is the, the side of it that is intuitive, that you're learning. It's going to be different for every animal in every situation and can really pay dividends in the end when you focus on body language as a whole between you and the animal learner as well. And going on from that, as we talked about, this is a tool in the tool belt of behavior, as we like to say here. Heather, how can we take that knowledge and then implement that skill 
into behavior and training sessions? Well, most importantly, you have to learn about it. And you have to become knowledgeable about what to look for and then how to interpret it before you can implement it. Honestly, that's really hard when you're first starting out as a trainer because there are so many other things you're trying to focus on and learn and master. And you've done a great job with the podcast, really touching base and highlighting some of those essential skills that you can't train unless you know. But as a first-time trainer, you're not just trying to remember all that stuff in your head that you've just learned about in your mechanics, and this is a new animal or, or whatnot, but now I want to throw in body language, and you have to learn that too. It can be overwhelming, so don't get overwhelmed by what we're going to talk about today, but try to start noticing some things and try to put that little seed in your brain about, as I'm doing a training session, how can I start to notice some things that maybe I was not aware of previously. And then once you go down this body language lane, it's gonna start guiding how you train your sessions, which again seems a little weird because when you've got training plans and shaping plans, you wanna follow those. And we're gonna talk a little bit later about how to put a, a kink in that and not train a behavior from a training plan per se. But interpreting body language will help you take away the labels from an animal. And that was a really good podcast, by the way, Shane. And if you're able to identify small bits of body language, then that big label isn't big and it's not misconstruing anymore. It's all of a sudden compromised of smaller items that are much more easily identifiable. And then there's no need for a label anymore whether you have an aggressive animal or an anxious animal or a distracted animal, when you can find out what those little pieces are in the body language per se and work on those, you don't have to label your animal anymore. So that helps from a trainer aspect. And even if you're training other people too, you just have you and an animal. There's, there's no label involved. So We've all been told to approach a training session with a plan in mind, which is 100% keen advice. But if you can't read your animal's body language, then you're always gonna fail. If you can't interpret that your animal is learning and ready to go to the next step, your shaping plan is going to fail. And one of the hardest things to do in training is to look at that big picture. We get very fixated when we're doing our, our training plans on focusing on small details. I need this animal to step up on the scale. I need that foot to raise up a little bit. I need an animal to lean into the mesh for an injection in its shoulder. And you're, you're watching a very specific body part and you can't pan out and see the whole body and what the whole body language is saying. So you're missing out on a lot of really good information. And then you're missing out on pertinent information to communicate back to your animal. It's kind of like being the director of a movie, right? Your director is very keen on the lighting and the costumes. Like he knows all the little bitty pieces of the puzzle. And even when you're watching through a camera lens and you're seeing a very small specific piece, you still need to be able to pan out and zoom out and see that the lighting is off or 
the scenery needs to be a little bit modified or something. But if you're or, too focused, or there's a boom hanging in the corner of your shot. 100%. <laughs> so yeah, you've got to not just look at all the little details at the same time, but you've got to be able to have that ability to pan out and see the big picture at the same time. And I think that's where new trainers can get very nervous and the confidence goes away of like, oh my gosh, I, I can't do that. It seems too overwhelming to do all of that. It just takes practice, just like with anything else. You'll get there. But to add a final point to your question, Shane, is how useful body language can be for problem solving. And sometimes an animal's body language will tell you more than the behavior issue itself. Several years ago, we at Moody Gardens were doing problem solving for staff. It's a course that we all have to take and learn about problem solving. And so I was sitting in on it, just trying to help guide the class as a little participant in the back of the classroom in case all these new people didn't want to raise their hand and, you know, propose questions and ask questions and offer solutions. I was there to kind of help instigate that. And the problem wasn't necessarily a problem to solve. It was just the mechanics of going through the problem solving process. But the problem that the penguin and seal staff brought up was one of their sea lions was no longer getting on the scale to get weighed. And so that was the problem that we were working through. And as I'm sitting in the back of this class, listening to the conversation and the questions being asked and the answers being given, I realized that this really was a real problem. And the sea lion staff was having a, a very challenging time because the sea lion literally had not been weighed in several months. And it seemed all the things that you've been taught to do when your shaping plan doesn't work, you do another one. And when that doesn't work, you write another shaping plan, right? Well, they had found over the course of several weeks, if not months, that not only were the shaping plans not working at all, but other behaviors were starting to regress in this animal as well. So after our little problem solving was done, I approached them and said, hey guys, I'm pretty sure I know what your problem is and I want to help you get there, but it's gonna be a little unconventional if you're willing to go on the ride with me, so to speak. So they were kind of at their wits end and were like, at this point, we'll try anything because everything we've tried thus far is obviously not working. So the main issue was the scale is on exhibit, trying to get the sea lion to come over and just is not even coming over at all within several feet, like not even getting on land, not even wanting to come over to the water portion where that scale is. And I said, yeah, because your animal is so over threshold, no training at all at this point in time is going to help. None. You, you can't target it. You're not going to be able to feed it. And they're like, yeah, we can't do any of that stuff. I said, because your animal is over threshold. You guys haven't been able to read the body language of the peace out. I'm done. You know, I'm tapping out. I'm not going any further. You haven't been able to read that body language. And this animal is so frustrated. It's just, it's just not cooperating anymore. You guys need to go back to step zero in your shaping plan and, and readdress this. They said, well, we did. We've, we've moved the scale to the back of the exhibit. It's like, no, 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 no. Step zero. Scale is not even on exhibit at all. Where does the scale live? Scale lives in an old holding room that's been converted to a closet. Great. That's starting point right there. We need two people, one at the closet and one with your animal on exhibit. And we're going to work on engage and disengage. 
it's a fun game for an animal who's nervous, believe it or not. It doesn't necessarily make the trainer happy because you're, you're nervous too, but you want to reward your animal for disengaging. They're going to engage with something. A noise is going to happen and they're gonna divert their attention to that noise or that object or whatever. Great, wonderful, I want you to look, but I'm going to reward you for looking away. I'm going to reward you for disengaging from that scary object. We're not targeting, I'm not asking you to do a behavior per se, I'm just watching your body language and rewarding you for the body language that I want to happen. So I went through the whole rundown of what I wanted them to do, and you're gonna start, you're gonna open the door to the closet, your person and the exhibit with the sea lion is going to watch the engagement. You're going to reward the disengagement. You're gonna close the closet door. Same thing, reward for disengaging, session is over. That's it, the scale doesn't even come out of the room. Your animal is under threshold. Your animal is calm, he's able to eat. So much better. And you build up that aversive to becoming something positive. So that's what I gave them. They were like, all right, we'll give it a try. And I caught them in the hallway a few months later. I was like, so what's the status? I haven't heard any feedback. They're like, oh, everything's fine. It's like it never even happened. We did everything you said and we, we didn't train it. And there was no targeting involved. There was no small approximations. We just watched the body language because they weren't training the scale behavior. The animal already knew that for whatever reason, it got spooked by it or a sound or whatnot. We're just reshaping how to get over there in order to do that behavior again. So that's where, again, you can use your body language to train something. But if you're not aware of the body language at all, that shaping plan that they were trying to do was failing miserably. Before we move on, I do want to ask you, could you clarify a little bit what you meant when you were saying an animal being over or under threshold? So under threshold is when you are able to work easily with an animal. And you can think of this in terms of yourself too for things that make you nervous. So if you are able to ask for a behavior, animal elicits a behavior, you offer a reward, they take that reward, whether it's a toy or food, everything is happy-go-lucky. Over threshold is when some brakes are starting to be pumped and the animal doesn't want to take food. The animal doesn't want to engage with a toy. The animal doesn't want to come closer to you. You've probably all seen that body language where you want just one more inch out of an animal, but those feet or those flippers are planted and they're like reaching out. You know, all of a sudden they're elongating their body as much as possible, but those feet are just staying planted and anchored. That's you know a little bit over threshold there of the point that you're trying to get them to reach. So you just need to back up. Let's go back under threshold and work where we can be workable and can work on this behavior, not just the behavior aspect of it, but the, the reinforcement aspect of it too. Because if you are over threshold, if you are too nervous, you're, you're not hungry, you're not going to eat food, you don't want to engage with things, and you can't train like that, you have no way to do reinforcement. So. How can you get that behavior to happen again if you can't offer any reinforcement? Highlights that importance of being able to, like you were saying, listen to the animal. Because in that story that you told, I think the really cool point is that we have all of these tools and they were using all those tools and 
taking steps back and looking at it and being able to be in tune and to listen to what your animal needs. And maybe your animal just doesn't need those things and they instead need focusing on it. And, you know, we said it so many times that relationship is one of the most important parts about working with animals. And what you just talked about in a nutshell is also relationship building while focusing on body language. It 100% is, yeah. And kind of going on that, as you were talking about this body language of the sea lion and reading it, and of course, every species and every animal is going to be different. But in general, what are some universal, I'm going to say, quote, body language fundamentals that we can look for in animals? Well, Shane, this is where I learned a lot from the Beagle doing search and rescue. I told you he was a rock star and totally knew what to do. I was the idiot at the end of the leash that needed all the training and would lead him astray. So I was getting frustrated because, you know, I'm not the one with the nose. I'm not the one that knows where the person walked. So I was second guessing him like, really? Did they go through all of that? thick brush to go, ah, probably not. Let's keep walking. Or we would also start training with um, a, a GPS. So someone would go lay a track and then we would let it sit all practice. And I would run the trail at the end of practice an hour, three hours later. And I, you always work with search and rescue with a, an observer with you. Someone is a safety buddy. So they would have the GPS. And as I was doing all these tracks, laying over the track that was just laid on the GPS, I was able to finally start seeing like where my beagle was going in relation to the track being laid. Because for search and rescue, you want that dog on the hottest, freshest scent as possible. And I was getting frustrated because he wasn't, he wasn't turning left where the person turned left. He wasn't you know, he'd bypass the person and then come back and do a U-turn. I'm like, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? Like, I was getting so frustrated. So that's when I was like, all right, well, I got to do an ethogram and figure this boy out. So I did that. Plus, the GPS really helped me hone in on some of these behaviors. And I realized, finally, my dog is so crazy smart. He wants to follow the edge of the scent cone. He wants to be where there is little to no scent. And that's what he's following. He's not following the part of the trail that has the most scent. He's on the outskirts of this trail. So he's taking a wide berth, making turns. He's passing a person just to make sure they didn't go down three, five, ten more feet. Oh, nope, there's the end. Okay, they really did. They are in this area. So once I understood that with my beagle. That is so cool, by the way. I just have to point out how cool that is. We could do another podcast, Shane, on search and rescue. I could talk again all day about that, too. We'll put it down because it sounds fascinating. I talked Sandy's ear off for three hours one day, I think, about it. (laughs) But encompassing that, plus doing some ethogram and figuring out what some of these behaviors, body language stuff he was doing, it like all made sense to me. I'm like, oh, dude, I totally get you now. I'm sorry I was back here derailing you and, and leading you astray. Your mom's on it now. We can go find people and all will be good. But some of the things that, you know, once I learned all that stuff about him, boom, just game changer in how I not only worked with him and all the other search dogs, but all of the animals I was working with at Moody Gardens. Like 
I started to see things in a different light and I started training differently because I was seeing things again, like I mentioned at the beginning with some dog clients, like, oh my gosh, I never noticed that before. You didn't just start doing this behavior because now I'm noticing like you were doing these behaviors the entire time. I'm just now smart enough to realize them and figure them out. But some of the fundamentals are your head position for an animal. Where is it and what is it doing? Is it fixed on something? Is it hypervigilant? Is it moving back and forth a lot? And what's normal for that species to do when it's calm, when it's nervous, when it's aggressive? I don't hate to use labels, but I'm going to. What's normal for your animal to be doing in those types of situations? And do you notice the head position? What's attached to the head, your eyeballs? So what are the eyes doing? Again, are they fixed on something? Very reactive dogs do what I call the doggy death stare to another animal. And they're just like, zoop, honed in, looking at that animal locked, not moving. I see every minuscule body movement you might be making. I'm not taking my eyes off of you. What is the ear position doing for your animal? And I know not every animal has ears that you can see. And your cute little sea lion, Shane, probably aren't moving their little little earbuds, you know, back and forth and doing stuff. But for hoofstock, oh my gosh, they got radar ears, man. German shepherds, border collies, they've got ears that are on radars and they're constantly moving individually up and down, forward, sideways. But even your soft-eared animals, I don't mean that like, oh, they feel very soft, but, you know, they lay at the side of their head in a soft manner. You know, they can still move them forwards and backwards. They'll get a crease in their ear. The middle of their ear will get a crease if they get nervous or they pinned back like barrettes all of a sudden. Um, so paying attention to the ear position, the animal's musculature. It's a little harder to tell the musculature on animals that have really long hair. But for the most part, you can tell when an animal is standing still and has all its muscles tensed up like, ooh, I can see your calf muscle. I can see your shoulder muscles. They're just look like Arnold Schwarzenegger out of your, you know, fur in your skin right now. You look really buff right now. So why are you like that? Why am I just now seeing this? Is this normal for you? Is it not normal? And then finally, your animals that have tails. Man, just think of that as a giant red flag. That tail tells you so much information. For a dog, you should have a nice little tail tick as it's swaying back and forth. My beagle when we were doing search and rescue, his tail was straight up and it just had a nice tick-tock back and forth. So if it stopped, hello, red flag, something's happening, mom. Or if it started to lower down from vertical to horizontal, red flag, hello, mom, something's happening, pay attention. So notice those tails, what are they doing? What's normal for your animal? How does it carry its tail when it's around other animals, whether it lives with them or does it have access to them in another manner? What does it do when it sees another animal? So those are really, Shane, the, the fundamental universal body languages. I mean, we could dive deeper into each of those, but head, ears, musculature, and tail are the top four in my book. Now, as you start to notice these things, something that I tell my dog clients, especially in puppy class, is when we start letting puppies play together after we do discuss body language and what certain things mean, someone will bring up, oh, the hackles on my dog went up. Oh my God, my puppy is aggressive. What do I do? You know, they start spiraling down. I'm like, whoa, pump the brakes. When we have questions about what our animal is doing with body language, it's great that you're noticing 
one thing has changed. But to jump off the deep end on one end of the spectrum or the other, multiple things happen. Multiple things will be changing. So just because your dog's hackles might be up, that's not an sign that your dog is aggressive because you would be looking for things on its head, right? Its mouth, its eyes, its ears. Something else will indicate to you, I'm an aggressive animal and I'm going to bite you. It's not just hackles. But same thing for any other animal. What else has potentially changed? And if I see three or four things in an animal, okay, there's my answer. My animal is nervous. My animal is really excited right now. My animal is aggressive or becoming frustrated. So you want to look for body language things that happen in multiples, not just finding one thing and being like, oh, I'm going to label my animal now. And I can't go forward because, you know, he's doing the doggy death stare at, at something. So looking for multiple things before you start going down an avenue of trying to fix something. But really what you should be doing too, as you're working with your animals, and if you think you know them, this is wonderful. Here's an extra way to really make sure that you know them. What is your animal's calm baseline? What body language does your animal do when it's a happy-go-lucky sea lion or it's a happy antelope or a carnivore? Like what does calm, normal Fido look like when you work with them, right? That's baseline. And when you start to notice an escalation, whether that's to one spectrum of becoming frustrated, potentially aggressive, or the other spectrum of being nervous, very anxious, not wanting to participate, you can work on how to decrease those to get back to calm. But if you don't even know what calm, normal body language is, then how are you going to be able to mark behavior when you start to see that decrease back to normal? As you were talking too, I was thinking that another great way to learn all of these body language isms that your animals might be doing is to watch others. I can't tell you how many times from watching training sessions on the outside, being the one that's not focused on it, you pick up on all of those little things as well. And then you'll understand those head positions, those ear positions, their eye movements, all those things that you were just talking about will really help you learn how to read universally through all the animal species you're working with, but then also hone in on the individuals you work with as well. Exactly. Yeah. I, I highly recommend that for everyone too. And even new trainers that might be listening and maybe you're getting frustrated because you are just chomping at the bit. You've done your homework. You've passed your test. You've taken these quizzes. You've ready, you've watched, you're ready to train. Watch some more. I can't tell you how important just observations are for an animal. And when I was in high school and even college, I, I volunteered at the Knoxville Zoo and I was lucky enough to hang out with a our behavior management person. It was a new position and she used to be the marine animal area where I volunteered. So I got to know her very well. But for many summers when I went home on summer break from college, I followed her around the zoo. I never trained an animal, but I watched for years mm. all of her training sessions that she would go to just completely mesmerized and soaking in what was happening and listening to the debrief after and watching and watching and watching and watching. I did this for years and never trained an animal. But I think because of that, I really understood when I was finally 
able to get into a position where I was training, man, did I know what to look for? Because all I did for years was just watch other people train. So that is not a, it's not a meaningless task when you're being asked to watch something, take it with a lot of great pride. And like I mentioned earlier about looking at the minute detail of an animal, but also being able to pan out and see the big picture can be vital for someone who is training, let's say an injection, and they're just watching a very specific body part of an animal, and they haven't quite yet learned to pan out and see everything. All of a sudden, you're noticing that the tail is doing something, which is indicating something else in an animal of why it's not participating like it should be. But the trainer is so focused on something else, it has no idea what's going on with the rest of the animal. So yes, you're right. Observations are super duper important. I love all that and exclamation point on that whole discussion because it really is going to make yourself, your team, your animals so much better being able to do that. And you mentioned this earlier in your sea lion story. So mm-hmm. we kind of already have the answer to it, but wanted to ask like, can we reinforce body language? I think the answer, as you already mentioned, is yes, you can. But can you talk a little bit about? how you can do that and what the benefits of doing so could be? Yes, I will. So how do you do that? So you do that by, we just talked about establishing what is calm body language, what's baseline, because when they go outside of that on one end of the spectrum or the other, you need to be able to recognize that and bridge and reinforce them for taking that de-escalation back towards calm. So Being able to have a shaping plan for your animal, you've done all the natural history, you've got all of that written down. I would make a new plan. People write down what body language is for your animal. What is calm? What does nervous look like? And not just species like, oh, all antelope do this. Probably, but what does a specific, you know, what does Fido versus Fifi, how do they differ in what they do? and have that written down in their files so that everybody knows this is normal, this is nervous, this is frustration, this is whatever. And when you start to see some of those escalate like a ladder and you've taken that step up the ladder and you notice, ooh, the body language has changed a little bit. I want to reward you for coming down, taking a step down the ladder when you're doing that. So if I've got an animal, let's say, who is nervous, all of a sudden they're they're frantically pacing and they're panting, right? And the body language looks very sleek and maybe crouched down a little bit, like they're trying to become invisible. So that's, I've got a nervous animal doing that. I can't train that, right? You're not at, you're over threshold. You're, you're not gonna be able to train. So I'm going to, instead of having you come over and try to target, I'm just going to focus on body language and rewarding you for for coming back to calm. So as we're panting and and maybe I need to get out of your comfort zone animal a little bit. So maybe I'll back up a few feet and see if that threshold helps. And let's say that it does. And I'm still watching you and I've got some some food and my bridge, whatever that is for you. And all of a sudden, um, my animal isn't crouched anymore. They're standing up a little taller and a little more normal. Great, bridge, and I'm gonna throw you some reinforcer. And we're just gonna bridge you for ever so slightly, taking that step down the ladder to calm. I'm still pacing. 
my, my tail is still down, I'm still panting, but I'm standing up a little bit taller. And now I'm noticing that your pacing is not as fast, it's got gotten slower, right? We're not frantically running around the room now, we're, we're slowing down a little bit. Okay, great, I'll reward you for that. Fantastic, bridge reinforce, bridge reinforce. And now I'm starting to notice that we're not panting. Now we actually paused and we took a big breath. And we still are gonna pant a little bit in between, but now I'm seeing you take a big breath and release. I'm gonna reinforce that as well. Because what's that's doing internally in your body is your heart rate is slowing down. You're slowly breathing those deep breaths and getting oxygen and you're able to get your brain in a better mind space as well. This is all from the animal's perspective, but you're just letting them know you're headed in the right direction. You're coming down, you're de-escalating, you're getting back to calm, you're headed in the right direction. And that's all you're doing is you're just reinforcing those little baby steps to get back to where you want to be. So when we talked earlier about multiples and, and seeing body language of multiples, I'm not waiting for all of it to happen at once. You'll be there all day. But if I can reward and, and mark in that animal's behavior, hey, just take a baby step. Just pause, take a breath, animal. Just take a nice, big, deep breath. Stop panting. Great, I'll reward that. And slowly, slowly, all of those multiples will slowly start coming down the ladder as well to where you can be calm. The animal might stop pacing for a moment. Great, I'll reward that too. And then they're just standing there, breathing, looking at you. Maybe they even look away from you. Great. Take that too. If I was making you nervous and you're finally calm enough to take your eyes off me and disengage, wonderful. I'll bridge and reinforce that too. So don't overwhelm yourself of thinking you have to do it all at once. Take a little bit at a time. I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little bit of that so that they're getting back to calm. And really what you're teaching an animal by doing that is you're building that animal's confidence. You're building greater focus. You're 100% building trust and you're teaching an animal to do other appropriate behaviors first. So if we have, I'll use a reactive dog. If I have a reactive dog and I'm teaching you that you can do all these other things, if you're going to engage with a dog, but if you look back at me and I reward you with a lot of stuff, as time goes on, when you see another dog, the first thing that I want you to think about instead of barking and lunging is to look at me, right? That's now your first card in the file cabinet is not bark and go bonkers. It's stop, take a breath and look at me. And then from there, we can assess the situation together and make a good judgment call of, you know what? We probably need to turn around and walk away, away right now. So it's very, very helpful. But if you can build that focus, build that trust, give the animal the ability to know that it can do other behaviors from a body language perspective, that confidence for that animal and that relationship with you is going to do nothing but grow. And to highlight something you just said, that if you are reinforcing this calm baseline, that kind of can become that animal's go-to. So if something does happen, like you said, dog's reactive, instead of chasing doing something that you you're not able to reinforce because not behavior that you're wanting to if that animal knows like all right i come and i'm am i neutral i'm in my calm right here then we're ready to go 
that can help the animal get there and allow you to be able to reinforce beyond that. And then also, I think as well, it helps you not utilize a timeout strategy, negative punishment of leaving a situation. If an animal is has had this great session and then this last thing happens and you can't reinforce that, well, if you have that fallback where the animal knows that if I'm calm, I'm at my baseline back with you, then we can move on. You could reinforce that and then you could end the session because at least you've ended on something that the animal finds reinforcing or you're able to then move on and do that. So I think it really can play a big role in helping your animals learn how to fail and move on from that. But, you know, think about it from the animal's perspective, too. If you are at a point where you can read their body language and you get them, they get that you get them and they want to work with you. Like they enjoy having sessions with you because you speak the same language. It's body language. You get each other. We could have a whole podcast talking about the same thing with your friends, your coworkers, the people that you're able to read and you know when to push and when to let them be then they find that trust in you because they know that you're going to be able to tell when is the right time to do or not something in any relationship in your life with animals and with humans. So it makes sense to me. All right. Well, switching gears to the final kind of topic of this episode, and we're going from reading an animal learner's body language to as Heather so artfully transitioned us a second ago to focusing on our own body language and the communication we're giving to an animal. Why is it important that we are cognizant and vigilant with our own body language? Well, haven't we all said, Shane, oh, they know what's about to happen and I haven't even done fill in the blank yet. Oh my gosh, duh. Well, how do you think that they know it's your <laughs> body language? Animals are expert observers. I have definitely learned that in my time as an animal trainer. They know us better than we do, especially our pets. And I tease my dog class clients all the time that their dog has a secret pocket in their fur with a notepad and a pen. And when you're not looking, they're writing down everything you have done and they study it. And that's how your puppies and your pets know you so well, is they just they study mom and dad 24-7 with that little notepad in their pocket. But it's it's a little silly, but it's not far off. But you give so much body language as well. So think about your own body language as we talked about the things for an animal's body language. What do you do when you are calm? What does your body language look like when you are calm? What does your head do? What do your arms do? What do your legs do? There's an amazing book I want everyone to read, and I should have brought a copy of it over here with me, Shane, to show you. It's a book by a former FBI agent. His name is Joe Navarro, and the book he wrote is What Everybody is Saying. And everybody is two words. So, what everybody is saying. Because as humans, we all have the same body and the body language is just innately programmed in all of us. And believe it or not, we all say the same thing with our body language. And that book is an incredible read. He goes from, I was about to say head to tail, head, <laughs> head to foot. 
covers entire body language about what you do as a person. And as I first started reading this, he gives a wonderful question at the, the beginning of the book and then later details what the answer is. But what do you think is the biggest giveaway to a person what their tell is for a person's body language? Like what's the one thing that a person does that lets you know what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they're going to do? Do you want to give a guess or you want to try it? Yeah, to answer give, that, Shane? I have, I'll kind of go through my thought process. I feel like eyes would make sense, but I think I'm actually going to go with their shoulders. That's a good answer it is incorrect i i knew the second you said that it was you're you're being nice it's a good thought wrong it's your feet ironically oh i never would have guessed that one i didn't either so don't feel bad i failed when i asked when i answered that too as i was reading the book so i'm not going to give you all the reasons why so go out and find that book and read it because it's it's incredible it really changed how i look at people and again once you read that, once I read that, I'm like looking at people now because I love to people watch anyway, but I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, I see all this stuff I never saw before. Oh my gosh. It's it's just incredible. You you see things that have been there the whole time, but now you're like blatantly, obviously, like seeing things. You're like, oh, I know what's happening right over there at the middle of Home Depot. I'm going to turn around and walk away right now because something's about to explode. Anyway, getting back on track. So what do you do in your own body language when you're calm? And every individual is going to do something slightly different. But overall, us as a human race, we do things that are going to be the same. From that baseline, you can go to what do you do when you're nervous? So for me, I know that my heart rate speeds up. I can feel my heartbeat faster. And if my heart beats faster, I get flushed in the face. And sometimes my movements will get a little more fast paced or they'll slow down excessively because I'm weird. Most people speed up, but I sometimes slow down when I get really nervous. Being able to recognize that that's happening is step one. And then two, how do I get back to baseline? How do I get back to calm? So I find that if I have to do an animal catch up, even if it's trained, Shane and I were talking before all this started about crate training a duck. So even if I've got a duck who is 100% goes in a crate on cue, never falters, but yet today is the day I have to catch him up for a vet procedure. Do you get nervous? I still do. Holy moly, I feel my heart race. I get flushed. I'm like, all right, Heather, calm down. Take a deep breath. Get the red out of your face. Slow down that heart rate. Go at a normal pace. We don't need to go super fast or super slow because guess who's watching? Your animal. It's noticing all of that stuff too. And it's like, why is Shane turning red and moving really fast all of a sudden? Something's about to happen, <laughs> right? Again, how do they know? How do they know? They're watching you. Um, on the flip side, so frustrated, what do you do when you get frustrated? So you're in a, a session and maybe you're working with several animals and you're just getting, you're flustered and frustrated. You're going to lower your chin down. You get that, you know, that look, I'm going to give you the doggy death stare with my chin rate, <laughs> my chin low and my eyes looking at you. So I'm getting frustrated. You, you purse your lips, you squeeze them together. Maybe your eyes squint a little bit, big red flag. You cross your arms. Hello, now you look big and scary and frustrated. So if I were an animal, would you want to come over and participate with that trainer right now? No. 
How do you get back to calm? How do you recognize that you're doing that? What do I need to do to get back to calm? Uncross those arms, lift your head up, smile, happy times, right? So your animal is looking at you as you're doing all of this. And just one more thing to be aware of, as we mentioned about watching all of your animal, gosh, now I've got to watch myself too and keep that in mind too. It's a lot to think about. What about when you're distracted? What if you get alarmed with something? Or what if you're anticipating something? Your body language changes with all of those and be cognizant about what am I doing? Am I giving something away to an animal? The anticipatory stuff for search and rescue is a huge deal. It is a game changer because you can inadvertently train your animal to watch you instead of go find something and alert on something. And if you are anticipating your animal is about to cue, let's say a, a human remains detection dog is about to cue on a source that got buried, all of a sudden your feet are together. You got your hand in your pocket. I'm about ready to give this reinforcer. They're almost there. Your animal is making that connection and not going to indicate on the source because they're watching like, oh, I'm close enough. Mom's about to say, yes, I made it. So this is, I'm going to lay down and get my reward because I must be close. But all of a sudden, when you're on a real scene, your dog's not indicating because he's learned you give the body language that they've found the source instead of them actually finding the source and indicating. So for search and rescue, anticipatory behavior from a handler is huge. And we all have to be on top of, of watching that and keeping people in check. But in the zoological world, it's still important to watch yourself and watch your other trainers as they're doing things because your animals, again, they just pick up on so much stuff. There's a the buzzword right now, I think, in the human world is mindfulness. So can you be aware of what you're doing in this moment? Can you recognize when you are not calm? And then the flip side of that, of mindfulness, is can you bring yourself back to calm? Your body language is just super important. It's very subconscious, but it's important to bring it into the conscious aspect and recognize it and do something about it. And when you were talking, I was taken back to when you were telling us about your beagle when you first started to understand what the tail meant and that the words you used were, oh, the tail's going down, like something something is up here and thinking about that. And as you were just talking about animals being expert observers, that they are experts in our body language, especially because their senses, we can't even fathom how they perceive the world because mm -hmm. their senses are so much better than us. So they are picking up on all these things. The animals are paying attention to everything. So I really love that discussion because it's so important to make sure that we are very cognizant. And then also being cognizant of, I am not in a position right now that I can do this with an animal. I need to sit this one out. I need to take a break because I know I'm not going to be able to go into the session with focus, with calm, in the right headspace to make sure that this is successful and communicated well to the animal. Do you have any last thoughts on the importance of body language? <laughs> try it once. 
it was a good. The goal of this podcast was to give listeners a very broad overview of not just what body language is, but how important it is in training. So hopefully we've been able to open your eyes a little bit to make you see things that have been there the whole time, but maybe you haven't really noticed before. And just a a last little thought to that too, is that just know that it comes with practice and it comes with a lot of being, we've said this word multiple times, but it is a good word, cognizant, being cognizant of yourself and the animal. So you can get there, but just know that it does take all these relationship building. It takes time in certain situations and it's going to look different for different animals all the time. All right. Now we are on to our fan favorite training tale. And I'm excited because Heather's has many fun training tales and different avenues to figure out which hat she'll be wearing as she tells us one. So do you have a fun training story for us today, Heather? Oh gosh, Shane. You know, I had a really hard time thinking of a story to incorporate body language. And I have two. So I'll let you choose what you want to hear. I have a funny Kuatamundi story, or I have a beagle search and rescue story. Um, A long time ago, I forget who it was at this point, but they were like, I'm giving you three. So at this point... Everyone likes to hear it. So if you want to tell both, you have official permission to tell both. Okay. Well, I'll tell you both. And if you feel that the podcast is running too long, you can cut one of them or leave them both in or decide that they're terrible stories and cut them all out. So I'll put the pressure back on you, Shane. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm sure they will be fun. I'm excited to hear them. All right, so uh, let's do the Kawatamundi story first. We had two Kawatamundis at Moody Gardens that were donated to us. They were former pets. So these were brother and sister, super duper friendly. Um, We had the best, I had the best relationship with them. And when I was working over with the animal ambassadors, which is where they were, I got a phone call one day from my curator that says, hey, we need an animal ambassador at the rainforest at 10.07. And this was like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, uh, okay. Wasn't on the books. And that's a very random time to have an animal. Do you have a preference? Yes. It needs to be something engaging, but not scary. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so I could, how about the Kawatamundi? Yes. So we have two of them. So it's like, let me take the boy. His name's Babar. Let's let's, I'll bring Babar over. Um, why, why 1007? I'll tell you when you get here, 10.07. Okay, got it. So my, my morning goes on and I was going to walk the Kawatamundi over from the opposite side of property. So we left at like 9.50 to walk over there and walking over towards the front of the visitor center and the American flags are like up all over property. It's not the 4th of July, it's not Memorial Day, it's not Labor Day, which is when they put all the American flags out to be patriotic. I'm like, okay, this is odd, but why not? And I also noticed that it's quiet out here. Like there's not, I don't see a lot of people. There's no golf cart traffic with staff. I don't really see any guests. 
okay. So I go inside the building, get to the end of the rainforest, the, the exit of the rainforest, and I meet my curator there. And I'm like, all right, I've got the Kawada Monday. What are we doing? And that's when they told me all the good juicy details. So many years ago, when President Bush was in office, uh, Vladimir Putin was also the president of Russia, and they were giving a speech at Rice University in Houston. And the first ladies were both traveling with them, and the first ladies were coming to Moody Gardens while their husbands were giving a speech at Rice University. And in coming to Moody Gardens, they were going to be walking through the rainforest, and we, the staff that I, my curator said, oh, and we wanted to have an ambassador animal in the rainforest for them to look at up close and personal. I'm like, oh, okay, that explains everything. Why I needed to be here at a specific time because everything with Secret Service is on a very timestamp. That's why there's no visitors around. That's why all the American flags are up. Okay, this is making sense. Oh, and now there's no pressure on me to have this Kawada Mundi behave nicely for the first lady of the United States and the first lady of Russia, plus all the secret service that are probably here. Okay, let's not have a panic attack. This will be great. This will be fine. So they said, okay, they're coming through at 1014 and we need you on this bench in the rainforest. All right, so we hustle over to the bench and I'm walking Babar around to get all his little nervousness out and I've got a pocket full of grapes and so 1014 arrives, I sit on my bench and they're always slightly late, but not too much. And I hear them coming around the corner. So I'm there with me sitting on the bench, but bar is on my right hand side. There's space on my left hand side and they all walk up with their entourage of secret service people and all the higher ups at Moody Gardens. And, oh, this is Heather and she's got a Kawada Mundi. And I give, you know, like a 10 second spiel about this cute little Kawada Mundi and blah, blah, blah. Nice to meet you. Have a wonderful day. And off they go. And not leaving with the entourage are two Russian Secret Service guys. I don't speak oh, Russian. I did not think that this this story was going to end up with Russian Secret Service guys. So I'm I'm invested. You're enthralled. Great. So these two Russian Secret Service guys are there. I don't speak Russian. Like I know Dosvidenia, but that's not going to be helpful right now. And they speak extremely broken English. So this was also, Shane, back in the day where phones were like flip phones and your cute little camera there. Okay, sorry, kids, if you don't know what those are. So one of them points to the empty spot on my left with the phone in his hand. Like, can we get a picture sitting next to you in the Kawada Mundi? Is what I'm gathering. So I'm like, yes, sit down. He's a very nice Kawada Monday. Like, what am I going to do? Bring a dangerous animal out to meet the first ladies of two important countries? No. So the guy walks, starts to walk over. And for any of you that have worked with a Kawada Monday before, they squeak like a dog toy when they get really excited. So here's where our body language conversation comes into now. Secret Service agent starts to come over, starts to sit down. Babar starts to squeak on my right. I know he's getting excited. So I try to feed him a grape to reward him for just, let's not go beyond this threshold of excitement, dude. Stay there and eat this grape. He hops on the Kawada Mundi, not the Secret Service guy. The Kawada Mundi hops onto my lap 
as the Secret Service guy is about to sit down. That, in turn, freaks out the Secret Service guy. He jumps up, screams, says something in Russian to the other guy, and they hightail it off to catch up with the rest of their entourage. At no point in time was he in any danger. I mean, he was just excited and wanted to say hi to a new friend coming to sit down. But, you know, I caught Babar mid-flight. He wasn't ever going to make it over to him. But a Kawatamundi and I scared a Secret Service agent from Russia. Shane is my story. <laughs> that is amazing. That had so many <laughs> twists and turns. That that could be a, a story and like a stand-up routine. <laughs> but yeah, I was not expecting the Russian... Secret Service guys to to struggle behind, much less scare them with my cute little Kawatamundi named Babar. But I did. So I got to mark that off my bucket list, Shane. I never knew it would be on there, but it's been marked off. There you go. I'm jealous. <laughs> story number two, Beagle search and rescue story. So we've talked a lot about body language and trust. So after I worked in really understanding my beagle's body language, I felt much more confident going out on searches. So being a volunteer organization, we wait for law enforcement to give us a call to help with searches for missing people. Or we also rely on phone calls from a local organization here in the Houston area called the Lara Recovery Center. The two people that started that organization, sadly, lost their daughter who was kidnapped and murdered. So they started an organization to help other families going through the same thing. So we happened to get a phone call from the, the Law Recovery Center, the LRC, uh, that said they had an elderly woman who had been missing for a, one to two days and the family had asked for their help. So they had asked the family, would you like a search dog team to come out and see what they can do? Family said, yes. So. I went out after work one day, and Houston, in case you don't know, is a very large metropolitan city. Galveston on the island on the coast is not a large metropolitan city, so it takes a while to go from one side to the other. So by the time I got to these apartments where the family was waiting for me, it was already dark outside. It was probably about 8 o'clock. And I also had to wait for my um, observer who was going to be joining me because you don't do searches alone. Just never know because I'm busy, you know, watching the dog and you need someone to just be your backup and watch the surroundings. So once we both got there, found our LRC contact, met the family, uh, made sure that we got permission to do this, told them what I was going to be doing with the Beagle. And then I said, I need to get into your house and or into this person's house and get a scent sample. So we got a scent sample. And during all of this time, too, talking about, you know, getting some input about this, this individual that we're looking for. Like I said, she was an elderly lady. You know, what is what is her mind frame? What is her state of mind? Why, why do you think she went missing? Where do you think she could have gone? And they were telling me that she... Several of her friends had passed away very recently and she was seeming somewhat depressed lately. I was like, okay, good information. Are these friends local? Are they out of state? No, they're local, but they're they're buried like 20, 30 miles away at a cemetery. I said, okay, um, is anything missing from this woman's home? Does she, you know, is her car keys missing, wallet? No, no, everything is still here. She didn't take anything. She's just got 
She just disappeared. Everything that she owns is still there. Okay, no problem. Well, give me a few hours. I'll be back with an answer. Um, and my got the beagle out and did his little scent check and, and off we went. So the, the purpose of a trail dog, especially in a, an urban environment, it's very rare to find someone hours later. So you typically see on the news or on the TV shows, you know, that the dog is right there with law enforcement, like moments after they arrive at the house, call the dog. And here comes the dog 10 minutes later and off he goes and he finds the person. So we're dealing with like a very long period of time that has happened. So scent, again, whole nother podcast we could do this on Shane, but scent very slowly degrades over time. It takes several weeks, but Remember, I told you some things earlier about my beagle. He likes to follow the edge of the scent cone. He likes little to no scent to do his trails. And he likes old scent. He loved to run really old trails, like three, five, seven days old trails. Man, he was just a hog in heaven. He loved those really old trails. He didn't like fresh ones. He's like, yeah, it's too easy, mom. Give me a challenge. So here we are two days later, insanely urban environment in the dark trying to find a, an elderly woman. So we go down this busy road that she's on. It's two lanes on both sides. And we get to our, our next intersection, which is a very busy intersection. Three lanes of traffic on both sides. So huge traffic intersection at Kirby. And I forget what the cross street was, but those of you in Houston know Kirby is not a small area. And so I have to do a scent inventory of our intersection. So that means I have to cross the street four times because I need to find out where this person went to make sure I give the beagle enough opportunity to see how far down two days later, cars might have pulled the scent down Kirby or the cross street that we're on. Because I don't know where she is, but I know we've at least made it to this traffic light. So now we have to wait for the light to turn. We cross the street, we do a little scent inventory. We wait for the next light to turn so we can cross the street, do another scent inventory, down the road, come back, down the road, come back. So we do that, we get back to our starting point and I talked to my observer who was with me. I said, here's what I saw. Is that what you saw too? And we both agreed. He, my beagle, wants us to cross the street and turn left down Kirby. Perfect, we wait for the light to change. We cross the street, we turn left down Kirby. He's cruising along. He's doing great. I'm noticing all the great body language things. And we, we pull into a couple of driveways. We come out of a couple of driveways. These driveways were vegetated. So they had the ability to hold scent a little bit longer, which is telling me in turn, I'm on the right path. So if the, if the person had gone the other way, the scent wouldn't be this far and it wouldn't be hanging on to vegetation. So we're doing good. Beagle is great. I made a good decision back at that intersection. Yay me. <laughs> Other things I've learned in search and rescue are to watch your dog because sometimes it takes a little bit for the subconscious to catch up to the conscious. And we're walking along, walking along down the sidewalk and Beagle looks across the street to the left, takes a few more steps, looks to the left, takes some more steps, looks to the left. And I stop him because he hasn't turned his body to turn left. He's just looking at his head. But the rest of the body has not caught up to, mom, we need to go left. So I told my observer, I said, here's what I think we should do. I think we should go left. But he's like, 
but he's trailing straight and he's trailing straight really well. So now we're at a fork in the road, Shane, what do we do? Do we turn left and try to let my beagle catch up to what I just saw subconsciously in him? Or do we keep going straight? I chose to go left. And we meandered back there, we went through a bank and I saw that he was starting to lose some scent about a block in. I said, all right, well, we've been at this for like an hour and a half now. I'm gonna go back because I've lost my scent back here, but I've gained some really good information and we're gonna go back and report out. So we go back to the apartment complex because really a dog in an urban environment can't work as long as a dog in a field who's off leash because it's just, it's really, really overwhelming. So hour and a half, two hours max. So we're at an hour and a half, plus I have to go to work the next day. I told you it was eight when we got there. We probably got started at 8.30, 8.45. So it's in the 10 o'clock hour now, Shane. So I need to go on my long drive back home and go to work in the morning. Anyway, so we go back and report out and I told the family, I said, we didn't find her. However, here's what I need you to do tomorrow morning. I really feel she walked to the cemetery 20 plus miles away. And I think she went there down Kirby. And they said, yeah, you can get there going down Kirby, but that's a really long way to walk. And she's in her seventies. She didn't go to the cemetery on foot. It's like, I'm not gonna argue with you, but I'm telling you, this is what my beagle is telling me. She went down Kirby. And based on the fact that she lost some friends, she's very depressed and her car is still here. She went to the cemetery. They said, all right, fine, we'll do that in the morning. So we pack up all of our stuff and go home. Usually for searches that I go on, that's the last I hear. The next day, I got a phone call. I was cleaning out our umbrella cockatoo enclosure. And so I had to step away because the LRC guy called me. I was like, hold on, it's really loud right now. <laughs> Let me step away where I can hear you and I don't have this screaming bird in my ear. And he said, Heather, I have to tell you, we found her. She's alive and well. It's like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Give me the details, what happened? So one of the sons around midnight went to the corner store that was up on the intersection of Kirby and whatever side street we were on and saw this woman walking across the parking lot. And he's like, I think that's my mom. And lo and behold, it was. So they got her to the hospital, got her checked out, and guess what she told them, Shane? She walked all the way to the cemetery. Yes. Oof. Had my beagle, had I kept going down Kirby, we would have run into her another hour or so. But my beagle was at his threshold of working. So that's the closest I've gotten to finding someone uh, with the beagle. but. It's all about body language, like walking that huge intersection, like that was extremely daunting. And you've, you've got a decision to make, which way do we go? How much do I trust my beagle that he wants to cross the street and go left down Kirby? That's all that training, that's all that body language of, of reading and learning your dog in this insanely busy urban environment. And to trust some of the subconscious things, he just went off left because it's possible that maybe she stopped at that intersection where he went left and there was a little extra scent pool of where she might have stayed for a while or maybe she got something in the parking lot or whatnot. 
you know, deciding, do I actually walk down to the cemetery or, or do I not? But regardless, she did. The beagle was right 100%. I would have found this woman given another hour. But man, am I grateful that we were able to help. We were able to give the family something to do the next day. And it just so happened that, you know, the son found her. She would have been home in another 30 minutes or so. But it all worked out really well. But moral of our podcast today is watch and learn that body language because you never know how it'll pay off. It's really, really important. Well, Heather, as we end today's episode, if anyone has any questions for you or want to visit any of your multiple businesses, do you have a way that people can get in contact with you? I do. So you can reach me anything ABMA related. You can reach me at website at the ABMA.org. You can also email ABMA at the ABMA.org. If by chance you happen to be interested in any training supplies from mytrainingstore.com, shameless plug there, you can email me at info at mytrainingstore.com. If you are listening to this in real time in February of 2024, just want to let everyone know that the ABMA's annual conference is coming up. It is April 14th through the 19th, 2024, and it will be in Nashville, Tennessee. It is an incredible lineup of speakers, with the keynote speaker being Dr. Lance Miller, and of course, a site visit to the great Nashville Zoo as well. So we really hope to see you in Nashville for the ABMA's annual conference. However, we know that not everyone is able to make that trip. So if you are interested in joining us virtually, this year is the first year that we are offering a virtual component along with our in-person. So head on over to the ABMA's website under the conference tab and you can get more information on how you can attend the conference virtually as well. Once again, a special thank you to Heather James McAleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla the Sea Lion, all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the Behavior Conversations. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us on the next episode of Animal Behavior Conversations as we talk about how to start a behavior program. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. There's our hot and tot. <laughs> I know. I at first I thought you were saying sassy, like you were using it as like an adjective, like our little hot to trot teals is what I heard at first. Hot and tot. Hot and tot. Yes. <laughs>